I want to invite you to go to to the Lord in prayer this morning one more time as we go to the scriptures. Father, give us clarity of thought and direction as we listen, really, for the first time in this series, um, to just Jesus' words in volume. And may we hear his voice above all other voices. May we be submitted to his call and his message over all other messages and all other calls. And be joined in um, understanding and application of what he has to say. We pray this in his name. Amen. So John chapter 5. We've been building up to Jesus' first big discourse. Now let me, let me explain just real quick what a discourse is. All right? uh, discourse is something different than a dialogue or a discussion or a statement or, or anything like that. A discourse is a, is a concise, grammatically organized statement. And, and grammatically organized is important. We, when we read a discourse, we cannot just kind of wing it. We have to really look at what's being said and the relationship within what is being said, um, how it is structured. Now, what that means is that when John remembers what Jesus said, because Jesus most likely spoke Aramaic. He, he most likely did not speak Greek, certainly not as his primary language. So John, the author of this gospel, is taking something that Jesus said and he is moving it into Greek and he is creating a discourse out of that. So these are the words of Jesus translated and structured into a discourse. Um, now, we, we, when we read this then, we have to be aware that the author, John, the human author, wants us to read it deeply. Now, what do I mean by read deeply? Okay, how many of you read comic books? Be honest, some of you. All right, all right. I was a huge comic book nerd. I discovered that Hoopla, our library service, allows me digital access to comic books so I don't have to pay for them. And I fall down that rabbit hole about twice a month. I just sit and, what's going on with Batman? Oh, interesting. Um, and I will just sit there and read comic books at night. I just have a thing. I know, I'm weird. Intellectuals are not supposed to like comic books or professional wrestling. I like both. That's the way it goes. Um, I, I'm not ashamed of it. Everyone's like, ooh, professional wrestling. Do you know it's fake? Yes. <laughs> you know your movies are fake too, right? Iron Man doesn't really fly. So um, Julia Roberts, you know, it's like, it's, anyway. Um, so uh, the, this, whole, this whole idea, though, of this discourse when we read comic books or popular books or newspapers or magazines, we don't, we don't read those deeply. You read it, it says some information, you go, uh-huh, there's the information, all right, moving on. Um, you know, you read it like Congress reads bills, and, and then you just move on, all right? That's, that's how it works. You just keep going. Um, but, but when you're reading something that is intellectually deep, all right, that really there's, there's a lot going on on the sentence level of what is being written, you have to really read it deeply, you have, to, you have to consider what is being said, how it's being said, how it is in relationship to everything else that's being said. Um, and so we're going to be approaching this. We're going to take a couple weeks on Jesus' statement, which begins in John chapter 5 and verse 19. Um, Jesus has just healed the lame man. 
at the, at the pool of Bethesda. Um, he, he spoke to the Samaritan woman in chapter 4. He's healed this lame man at the pool of Bethesda in chapter 5. And now he is for the first time going to be speaking at length. And this is how it goes. Uh, chapter 5, John chapter 5 and verse 19. So Jesus said to them, truly, truly, or the Hebrew word is amen. All right, amin, amin is what he says. All right, um, truly, truly, I say to you, the son can do nothing of his own accord, but only what he sees the father doing. Now, before I get any deeper, look at how Jesus spans human experience and theology in a simple sentence. Now, if you're reading an English Bible, you see that the words son and father are capitalized. I don't know if you've noticed this, but you're, when you are speaking, you can't tell what's capitalized and what's not. If you speak German, they just randomly capitalize stuff, so it doesn't matter. Uh, but uh, when we, don't, we don't speak capitals. So think about how Jesus says this. Now, the translators, the typesetters of, of your Bible say, okay, Jesus is talking about himself, and he's talking about God the Father, and he is. However, the way he opens, he opens with human experience. In the ancient world, guess who taught a young man his trade? His father. And guess what? When you were learning a trade, say you were learning, um, you were learning how to be a, um, pick a trade. Somebody, somebody named something that people do. A what? Masonry? All right, you're learning to be a stone cutter. All right, what was the other one? Well, they weren't doing electrical in the first century, but that's a good one. Um, but the, uh, would have been really, Jesus is just, he's like positive and negative. Uh, yeah, anyway. Uh, no, not, but let's use masonry, okay? So you're dealing with stone. There's a certain way that you break stone, that you carve stone, that you, that you transform stone to make it as you want it to be, all right? You can't just walk up with a chisel and go, and tack, done, all right? There's, there's a lot that goes in. They have to... They have to look at the grain of the rock. They have to feel where it's going to be. If you've ever seen somebody split rock with hand tools, it is fascinating to watch them drive spikes in at certain places and then hit it at certain places, and suddenly this massive rock splits open, and it splits smooth. And you sit there and go, what just happened? That was amazing. You know, and then you go out in your yard, and you try it, and all you do is wreck your tools. Um, I speak from experience. So... Um, you had to learn the skill, and you had to sit and listen to the Father to teach the skill. All right, you you couldn't just you couldn't just go. I've decided. And in the ancient world, you didn't get to choose your trade. You didn't grow up. You know, ah, Dad, I know that you're a carpenter, but I I really would love to be a cobbler. And your dad laughed at you and said, "You're going to be a carpenter." You know, well, I want to be a cobbler. No, Joseph is the cobbler. You're the carpenter. This is the way it goes. This is life. Um, there aren't many societies that are like that today in the modern world. Um, and uh, the, Japan has a few of them. If you ever get a chance to watch a, a show, there's a, there's a show called Hiro Dreams of Sushi. It is worth watching. It's about a sushi master named Hiro, J-I-R-O. Um, and he is 80-some years old. His son has been apprenticed to him for 40 years. And at one point, Hiro goes, one day he'll be good enough. Um, and Hiro, Hiro is one of the very few... Um, sushi masters that has won, I think he's won five or six Michelin stars. He is like, he's tremendous. It's like $1,300 to have a meal at Hiro's restaurant, which is in the subway in Tokyo, by the way. It's just a little 12-seat thing. It takes like six months to get a reservation, so don't try to go there. 
um, besides Sushi is Gross. But anyway, it's a worthwhile movie. Uh, it's a worthwhile show to watch about, about somebody who committed their entire life to a trade and became so very good at that trade because their entire life was committed to it. Well, this is, so for Jesus to say this, the son can do nothing of his own accord, but only what he sees the father is doing. So he's immediately identifying something that everybody's familiar with. When you are the father of a son, you're going to train your son, and your son can only do what you teach him to do. He's only going to acquire that skill, but he's expanding this, right? For whatever the father does, the son does likewise. So as the father's teaching, um, but then he goes a step beyond. He says, for the father loves the son and shows him all that he himself is doing. So he says, look, he says, the, what, what God is doing, right? And Jesus is identifying himself as the son of God. And he's saying, what God is doing in the world, he is showing it to me, the son, so that I can do the same thing. Now, why was this so important to John, that he, that he structured this this way? Well, I can illustrate it to you from popular theology today. So often in churches today, people talk as if God is the big meanie, Hulk Hogan up in heaven with the baseball bat, looking to smash you over the head for all of your sins. But Jesus, who is generally a Swedish hippie with a dish plate behind his head wearing a bathrobe, Jesus, Jesus wants to show grace and love. God wants to show punishment, but Jesus wants to show love. And, and they're at odds. They're, they're at war with one another. It's justice versus Jesus. You know, it's, it's the father and the son, death match for all eternity. It's kind of like there, there is this idea of this dichotomy of the world. Well, that comes from Gnosticism, which was an ancient Greek um, philosophy, which became a religion. And when it got into Christianity, it got really, really weird. And it was the idea that the creator God... Um, the God that created the world, um, he created the world in spirit, but then the world fell due to something called the Demiurge. I'm not going to get into all the philosophy of it, but the world fell and it became physical and all physical things are evil. And so the physical things are ruled. And so God has to destroy the physical things. But then Jesus came and Jesus came to make us all spiritual again. And so they're at odds. Uh, Gnosticism is a dualistic heresy. It believes that there's two divine powers at work. All right, one one for destruction and one for for blessing, and and so and that was beginning at the end of the first century when John is writing this gospel, and so John is addressing this question and saying, look, the Father and the Son, they're together in this. They're not in opposition. Uh, I'm an Old Testament scholar. My dissertation is on the Old Testament. I preach on the Old Testament an awful lot. People generally don't like preaching from the Old Testament unless it's from Psalms or Proverbs. Because the Old Testament, we have been taught subliminally, the Old Testament is God being a big meanie, but the New Testament is God being good and generous and loving. To which I reply, hogwash. My dad's favorite words. It took me until I was in my 30s to realize what he was talking about. It's like all the stuff that comes off a hog when you wash it. That's what he means. Um, that's hogwash. God is God. God has always been God. All right? There's no, there's no Old Testament God and New Testament God. He is one God. So Jesus is getting to this point. The Father loves the Son. Verse 20 shows him all that he himself is doing. 
and greater works than these will he show him so that you may marvel. What is he talking about? Greater works than these. What are the greater work? What are the works that they've already seen? What are the these? What are the these? Chapter four and five. <laughs> Reaching the Samaritan woman, the water into wine, healing the lame man. The signs that have been shown. He says, you think this is good? God is at work doing something even greater than that that's going to blow your mind. That, by the way, is the proper translation of that you may marvel. He's going to blow your mind. God is going to blow your mind. Verse 21. For as the Father, this is a fascinating statement. For as the Father raises the dead and gives them life, so also the Son gives life to whom he will. Can you name a place in the Old Testament where God raised the dead? All right. Elijah and Elisha raised the dead. Elijah resurrects one person. Elisha resurrects two. Where else? Hmm? Ezekiel, all right, the, the valley of dry bones, Ezekiel 38. There's actually, uh, believe it or not, there's a statement in, in Hannah's prayer that God, uh, God brings back from the dead, which is fascinating, 1 Samuel 1, uh, 1 Samuel 2, 1, I think it is. It's a fascinating statement. It's, it's, it's built in. Um, uh, Job at one point says that he knows that his redeemer lives and that he shall stand on the earth in that last day. This sense that somehow Job is going to return from the dead. In... In John's day, resurrection was a given, that God resurrected from the dead. Um, it's, a, it's a fascinating study that I don't have time to get into about how this is going. But um, whether Jesus actually means like resurrect from the dead entirely or simply bringing something back to life that was dead um, is tough to know. In, a, in other words, an aspect of your life, like the lame man's legs were dead and God raised raised them back to life, right, through Jesus, right? So um, how he's saying that, what he's mean, but it's an interesting thing for as the Father raises the dead, I'm gonna leave that, you guys can go write your own PhD dissertations on that, um, and give them life. So also the Son gives life to whom he will. Now, left by itself and isolated, that verse just says, okay, Jesus is gonna give resurrection, but watch what happens in the following verses. For the Father judges no one but has given all judgment to the Son, that all may honor the Son just as they honor the Father. Now, it's interesting because what John has done is he shifted the difference between, he shifted the analogy of life and death. He shifted it from life and death to life and judgment. Now, the Greek word for judgment is the root of our word crisis. All right? It's the idea of a decision between two things. Uh, whoever does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent him. Verse, uh, verse 20, 24. Truly, truly, I say to you, there it is, Jesus saying that again, amin, amin. 
Whoever hears my word and believes him who has sent me has eternal life. He does not come into judgment, but has passed from death to life. See how he puts the contrast between judgment and life. It's judgment and life. Not, not life and death, it's judgment and life. He, he whoever believes me passes from that judgment to life. Now watch this really carefully. Verse 25, truly, truly, I say to you. There it is again, I mean, I mean. An hour is coming and is now here. When has Jesus said that before? And the hour is coming and is now here. He says it to the Samaritan woman. He is tying, what he is saying is growing out of the, the encounter he has with the Samaritan woman. The hour is coming and is now here when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God and those who hear will live. Who heard the voice of, God, of the Son of God in that encounter before? The Samaritans heard it. And what were they to the Jews? They were dead. They were unable to access the covenant of God. They were unable to get close to God. They weren't allowed to go to Jerusalem. Therefore, they couldn't be ritually pure. They were of mixed blood, so they weren't allowed into the congregation. They were, in the Jews' mind, dead to God. And Jesus says, but they heard the voice of the Son and believed. And that made them alive. Jesus saying, it doesn't matter where you come from, it matters whose voice you hear, is one of the most important things that we can ever get out of the scriptures. That it's not where you come from. It's not who you are. It's not who your parents were or weren't. It isn't the religion that you follow. It is, do you hear the voice of Christ? Are you listening to him? The Samaritans who were excluded are now included because they heard Jesus' voice. For as the Father has life in himself, so he has granted the Son also to have life in himself. And he has given him authority. The Greek word is exousia. I have given, I have entrusted him. He, the Father has entrusted him with the authority to execute judgment because he is the son of man. Now that is an interesting thing that I don't have to get into, but the idea that the son of God is equal in will and equal in possession of godhood, all right, the son of God, and yet his judgment is given to him because he is the son of man. That Jesus' nature both 100% God and 100% man is the reason that he has the power to judge over all of mankind. It's an interesting theological idea. Take it home, dig on it, think about it, disagree with it, agree with it, write down questions. I'll answer them when I get back. Truly, truly, I say to you, an hour has come. Reading this again, verse 25. And is now here, when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God, and those who hear will live. For as the Father has life in himself, so he has granted the Son also to have life in himself. Remember, all the way back to chapter 1 and verse 1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. 
What did Jesus say? He said, those who hear the voice of the Son of God. What is the voice for? It is to speak the words. What did God's voice do? God's voice created order out of chaos. We might even say um, he created everything out of nothing. If you want a fancy Latin term, you can call it ex nihilo creationo. Um, and you can even pronounce it Italian if you want, because nobody here speaks Latin. And, um, and, we, and I don't think so. If I do, if you do, I apologize. Uh, but the, uh, this whole idea of God's voice speaking words and those words bringing life and order. And now Jesus speaks words and his words bring life and order. But if his voice brings life and order, it must also bring This is the unpopular part. Judgment. It must also bring judgment. Do not marvel at this. For an hour is coming. There it is again. An hour is coming when all who are in the tombs will hear his voice and come out. Those who have done good to the resurrection of life and those who have done evil to the resurrection of judgment. Now let me just step back for a second. For those of you that are new to the Christian thing and maybe coming to church because you were forced to or just because you were curious, let me just go ahead and tell you that the resurrection, this whole idea, is the most absurd, ludicrous thing in the entire universe. The idea that someone could be resurrected from the dead into the living makes zero biological sense. Does everybody agree with that, by the way? Everybody agrees with that. Everybody's like, wait, is he just saying he doesn't believe in the resurrection? No, I absolutely believe in the resurrection of the dead. But it don't make no sense. I use that double negative on purpose. It makes no sense at all that the dead could be resurrected. There are so many logistical problems with the idea of the resurrection of the dead. Where do the cells come from? If they've gone ashes to ashes, dust to dust, what happens? What, what ha- I mean, I get confused. What if they got attacked by dogs and the dog ate off his hand? Where does that hand come from? That's gross. I mean, there's just all these questions that can be asked. But the fact of the matter is, Jesus says there is going to be a resurrection of the dead. I'm a follower of Jesus because although I, I would love to, to live without the inconvenience of all this stuff in the Bible, I just can't get past Jesus. And so if Jesus is my Savior, which he is, and if he's my Lord and he says this is the way it goes, I've just got to accept that it is. That's called faith. And he says, look, Jesus says, there is going to be a resurrection. And because there is going to be life, there is going to be judgment. It isn't popular to say, and and I apologize in advance if it upsets you, but the Christian message is, we must put our faith and trust in Jesus. And there is no other solution to the judgment coming. You say, well, what if I'm a good person? Doesn't matter. But I tried really hard to balance out all the bad that I did. Doesn't matter. You will never find a place in the Bible. Now, other religions believe this. The Egyptians were big on it. But you will never find a place in the Bible where God says, Jesus says, well, basically there's scales. And you just put your good stuff and your bad stuff and you try to even it out. And as long as it comes pretty close, you can get in. There's nothing in the Bible that says, well, you know, you came close. I'm going to give you some extra credit and you can slide into heaven. 
There is nothing in the Bible that says anything except this. There is one name under heaven by which you must be saved, and that is Jesus Christ. And I don't mean to upset, and I don't mean to offend, but that is the message of Christianity. And anybody who calls themselves a Christian and doesn't say that is being dishonest. Christianity is an exclusive religion. Salvation comes only through belief in Jesus Christ. Now, that doesn't mean you've got to get all your ducks in a row and have it completely perfect. You're like, how much belief is enough belief? Where's the threshold? As a Christian, as I've grown from being a child in a pastor's home to being a pastor myself, you know what? My belief has changed and grown as I've gone. That's just natural. It starts with, who are you trusting? Are you trusting the word of Jesus? Are you trusting yourself, your religion, your traditions, your ideas? Because the difference is the difference between life and judgment. There is coming a day, and Jesus makes it very clear, an hour is coming when all will be judged. Those who have done good, and by what he means by done good, he, this is, don't take this out of context for the rest of the discourse. He said, you have to believe the voice of the Son of God. For those who have done good to the resurrection of life, and those who have done evil to the resurrection of judgment. What voice you hear what voice you believe matters. It matters. If I did not believe that, I would not be up here. It breaks my heart every time a a friend or a family member passes from earth without belief in Christ. It breaks my heart. Now, I can't force somebody to believe. I know guys that try to do this. They go to people's deathbeds and like, just nod your head if you believe in Jesus. Yay! It's their decision to make. We're not here to pressure people into choices. But we've got to be honest about where we are and what we believe and where we stand. Jesus is salvation. Everything else is judgment. You say, how can you be so absolute, so binary about that? Jesus was. And I'm sticking with him. Doesn't matter what I think. I mean, honestly, if I'm being totally honest, there's a part of me that really wants to negotiate this with Jesus. I really want to smooth this out. It would be much nicer if it was a little fuzzier, if I could kind of squeeze some people in, but it's not the way it works. And here's the thing. And I, and I want to I want to leave you with this. I really believe that when Jesus delivers this statement there are tears in his eyes he's speaking to a bunch of religious people remember from last week who are more upset about a lame man being healed on the Sabbath than they are that a man who had never been able to go to the temple was able to go and join the congregation These people are so turned away from the voice of God that they're trying to kill the guy who's walking around healing people so they can be in communion with God. 
And he is talking to them, and I believe with tears in his eyes, because he knows. He knows that they will not hear. They will not listen to his voice no matter how much he calls to them, no matter how much he says. And don't for a second think that God the Son doesn't weep over those who don't believe. When I was a kid, growing up, again, in fundamentalist Baptist circles, there were these things called chick tracks. How many of you have ever seen a chick track? They're little comic book-y things. Um, if you... I may say something very controversial at this moment. If you have some, hide them or throw them away. They have some terrible theology in them, but they're cartoons, and I was a comic book kid, so I read all of them. Every single chick track has, has at some point a picture of a faceless God, because you're not allowed to give God a face, sitting on a, tent, on, sitting on a throne with a booming voice saying, depart from me, I never knew you. Right, this is big. I believe, and maybe when I get to the judgment, I'll be wrong, but I believe with all my heart that God's heart breaks over every person that must be judged. And that will change your attitude of the gospel if instead of you think of God waiting to whack people with judgment and, and condemn them, he rather is brokenhearted over them. He loves them with an inf infinite love a love that we could not comprehend in its scale or degree. And yet they reject him. And God weeps. That'll change your thinking. He does not want us to be judged. Do not think, Jesus says in chapter 3, that the Son of Man came into the world to condemn the world. The world was condemned already. He came to save. God loves us. It breaks his heart that we do not follow him, do not hear his voice. And that should change your heart and your mind about the life that you have been given, Christians, and how you can share the word of God with others. Let's have a word of prayer. Father, help us to have Jesus' broken heart over the judgment. It's so easy to adopt a superior position. That because of what we believe, we are special. Break our hearts and transform us. And Father, for those that we, we touch who have not yet heard Jesus' voice. Help us to speak his words with his heart. To love, to honor, to speak, to be truthful, to be compassionate. And Lord, may we become the conduits of his voice. Turn our hearts so that we do not look Samaritans, but rather see people that God loves. That we do not see the weak and the broken and the diseased, 
we see those who God wants to heal. Jesus, may we be your church in every way, the embodiment of Christ's passion here on earth. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Go in peace, my brothers and sisters.